pleased to have you with us tonight. We're talking about a range of subjects. So we're talking about LGBTQ+, um, uh, we're talking about substance use, we're talking about treatment experiences, we're talking about some of the inequalities that we can encounter and perhaps some of the things that we can do um, in order to be responsive to that. So we'd love to hear from you. And, and so to do that, let me hand over to Dave and he tell you how you can join in tonight. Yeah, thanks, Nikki. Hi, everyone. Uh, it's great to be joining in tonight. Uh, we've got a couple of ways people can join in as usual. The first is on Facebook Live. Uh, obviously, watching on there, if you just head towards the right, there should be a place for you to make comments and questions. Uh, mm. If you're over on X, then all you need to do is make sure you include the hashtag MHTV. Uh, and then we'll be able to see any questions or comments that you're, you're mentioning. And obviously, we can try and bring those into tonight's conversation. Without further ado, back to you, Nick. Yeah, so let's introduce you to Shannon then. So Shannon's a um, PhD student, a researcher, just basically doing everything. <laughs> and um, particularly focusing on intimate partner violence um, for gay and bisexual men. So we really do want to hear from you. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself then, Shannon? Yeah, certainly. Um, well thanks for for having me on um i'm really excited to sort of talk about my 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 job and my phd and and uh a little bit of just everything what i've been doing so as uh nikki just said that i'm a doctoral student at cardiff university um conducting research into young gay and bi men's experiences of intimate partner violence um i'm also a research assistant within the substance use research group at the University of South Wales. Um, I'm originally from Northern Ireland, um, but I moved to Wales about 10 years ago now, I think. Um, I do have a background in mental health, so I worked previously in um, community mental health services uh, with complex trauma survivors, and that was before I did my PhD. Yeah, so how did you, how did you come to find your pathway into study, particularly focusing on these issues? Um, so basically, I mean, I've always had a, an interest, um, I guess, in criminology, because that was sort of what I did as my degree and my master's yeah. and things like that. And then I kind of, I kind of got into it. I, I came across um, a few researchers, we Ben Hine, um, Elizabeth Bates, and uh, an activist, a former activist known as Erin Pitsy. Mm -hmm. um, so she actually opened the, the first woman's refuge in the UK. Um, and I began sort of listening to various talks and stuff. Um, and uh, she was, you know, talking a lot about men's experiences um, of IPV as, as well. And Ben Hine and Lesbians touched a lot upon LGBTQ plus people's experiences. Um, so that kind of got me started. And then I kind of went down this rabbit hole and mm. it kind of made me consider why, you know, we still have this general narrative around, like, around relationship abuse. It kind of is based on the gendered perspectives and yeah. that excludes a lot of minoritized groups um i also have like close friends um in the lgbtq plus community that have survived like abusive relationships and like family and stuff as well and they you know have lacked affirming support so you know i think that's basically where it all stemmed from and then you know it's it's, it's acknowledging that it's not about taking away from the fact that you know, we know that 1.3 million women um, experience domestic violence and it's, you know, one in six women and one in four men, which, you know, that's an important mm -hmm. statistic. And, it, and it's not about taking away from, from that. And, or I guess you could say about, you know, taking from Peter to pay Paul, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Uh, you know, it's about, I guess, making access to help and support equitable, um, regardless of your identity. Um, 
so yeah I guess that's it, is it in a nutshell and then I kind of just went from there I think you're making a really valid point just straight out the gate there about this weird belief that somehow there's only this much care or this much support or this much compassion and then it when it runs out then people just have to make do yeah or that somehow um for, for one person to be treated with fairness compassion and safety means that other people are going to just have to get by yeah. and it's such a strange idea isn't it we don't really ration compassion in other services like that we don't say oh well everyone who's had a heart attack um we've only got this much and then if you have a heart attack and you belong to a different group then you can't really get any treatment yes yeah and it's a really odd idea isn't it i think you're, you're right to say that it's a matter of equity so why is it that why do you think that it is that it happens and what and what's the consequence um so i guess before i, I touch upon that i kind of just wanted to add um one of the interesting things just sort of to to i guess touch touch upon the, the politicized nature of this is that mm. when i went to my well, sort of I, I approached uh people in the university and yeah. sort of said that i was interested in this in this topic and the, the initial response was very much um well more women experience it and and I my response was uh, you know I'm not I'm not saying that it's more about you know should we not research a problem or should we not look into a problem just because there's you know higher numbers in this group and less numbers in that group um it's you know we don't do that for for homicide for example you know things like that you know um but yeah, so I just, I just kind of wanted to say that. Um, and what was your question again there, sorry? Yeah, why is it, do you think, that some people are overlooked? I mean, I think, as I said, like, I think it, look, because we have these sort of traditional narratives, you know, through society that we, fo you know, we focus heavily on physical violence um, perpetrated by men against women and girls um, in opposite sex relationships. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, that can exclude other gender identities um on, on other sex sexual mm. orientations and uh, and also other forms of abuse that aren't physical um mm. i also think that there are some problematic attitudes that you know maybe minimize the psychological emotional or verbal abuse in relationships um mm. if there is that assumption that you know domestic violence must mean physical um then that does tend to overlook you know very real suffering um mm. i do think as well that one of the big things um and certainly in in my phd i found this is discrimination and stigma so mm. minoritized groups um as, as you know can imagine lgbtq plus people often you know they fear if not face directly discrimination when seeking support after um like an, an, an abusive relationship mm. and that then ultimately leads people to stay silent um you know they're not going to want to come forward because they're mm. you know they're going to risk the you know ju judgment mm. um and then i guess finally one of the other big problems is we simply don't have enough data or research on this issue um i was approached recently uh by someone else who's doing a phd um on a similar topic and mm they had actually been provided with my name because I'm one of the only people or one of the very few sorry in mm. the UK that is actually looking at this um which I think is crazy in 2024 mm. but mm. you know okay um 
but yeah, so until until very recently, um, I'd say the last the last 10, 15 years, there has been more being done, but it's still very limited. Um, and it does all of you know, the research that, that is coming out and even the policies and legislation and, and things like mm -hmm. that all predominantly focus on cisgender heterosexual relationships, mm -hmm. um, which obviously then perpetrates our assumptions and then overlooks diverse relationship dynamics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I mean, I guess that then sort of, sort of feeds back then to the you know the societal assumptions that we have about traditional relationships the dynamics and roles that you know that are in the household mm. um, but yeah so basically I kind of I'm aiming to sort of highlight I guess you could say underrepresentative voices mm. um, because I think it's really important that we have more compassionate and equitable um, systems of support for all survivors regardless of what you know, their identity or situation or or whatever um mm. I think you, you pointed out some of the things around kind of like the stigma and I certainly don't think if I was a young gay man I would want to go into a police station and report domestic violence I think that would be really tough yeah how people treated me I think yeah. that would be really quite a frightening thing to have to do yeah um, I wonder if there's some other I mean not only is there this sort of stigma going on and the invisibility so people don't know to ask and don't know to look like, I guess I wonder, is there something around the way that people see men as, you know, you should be able to take a punch or like fighting is something that, you know, shouldn't be as shocking to you as it is for a woman or equal partners taking a chop out of each other isn't the same as a big person and a little person. Are there that, there's that kind of narrative playing at all? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I <clears throat> I ran a survey, mm. part of my PhD, and then I also did... Um, repeated interviews uh, with eight survivors and uh, along with that then I also used a um, creative method known as photo elicitation um, and so in the interviews uh, the men sort of discussed they went the whole idea was for them to sort of freely discuss their stories um, and then if they wanted they could come back and they could do a photo elicitation session with me um, and what that entailed was they could bring five to ten photographs that um, they felt represent their experiences um, of domestic violence and often and if I, I would say every single one of them actually um, they all said very similar things that those that did reach out to the police or other sort of services or authorities were met with um, I guess very negative responses um, mm. so like in one situation uh the police just put it down to two men fighting um even though the the person was you know ex was extremely violent and mm. you know it was a really horrific significant significant abuse this is what we're talking mm. about here it's not it's not you know insignificant and and mm. that's often the thing I think any of the research that I've read before it kind of states that you know with with gay and bi men it's mm. you know they don't experience as significant um abuse as, as as women and things like that and I don't think it's really helpful to have mm. you know those kinds of viewpoints because then you know I feel like that's very untrue but particularly when it now that I've interviewed people and I'm hearing their stories and mm. a lot of them are telling me that if someone had just asked them are they okay you know do they need help they would have I mean 
we're talking about people that were in relationships for maybe a decade and mm. they were repeatedly going into A&E, repeatedly having the police um, at their home and nothing happened. No one mm. happened. Mm. I think, I mean, and I think you're right as well to say that, you know, this idea about judging risk on damage, physical damage, it, it really overlooks the kind of emotional betrayal that's yeah. happening. Yeah. And the fact that, you know, how do you even, if you're not safe in your house, how do you sleep? How do you, how do you function when you're sort of like on hyper arousal, hyper alert the whole time? It's, it's just. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, terrible. like with this, with this research, a lot of, um, I guess, many academics mm. use the term hidden victims. Yeah. And for me, I don't particularly like that term because yeah. it contributes unintentionally to the issue of overlooking certain groups so the key is using language that I guess conveys the responsibility lies with the systems and the services that feed to see and serve these groups rather than you know an inherent invisibility these people are not invisible they're very visible they're just yeah they're in and out of A&E and they're reporting yeah you're not invisible are you you just not looked at yeah exactly mm. um but yeah so like in in my ideal world no mm. person seeking help after abuse should be turned away or feel unwelcome to ask for help um I mean it, you know I just think that as I said we're in 2024 this this needs to be acknowledged it's happening you know mm -hmm. it, it, certainly I know and this might be anecdotal but I know that you're either a, a victim survivor or you know someone that is and that you know yeah. that's a very real thing mm. yeah and I think it's, it's a very strange thing is it's just about other uh, an emotional relationship a connection to say that it's different somehow inherently yes it's not different if people are hurt within the space of a relationship all of the physical all of the mental all of the emotional pain is exactly the same because it's human beings yes yeah it's interesting isn't it that people struggle to get their head around that a little bit yeah i mean there are so many parallels between lgbtq plus people's experiences mm. and um heterosexual cisgender people yeah. and that includes the impact that it has on the survivors um as well and mm. you know although there are very many similarities there also are unique differences so you might have um people that have their sexual gender identity used against them as an attack a, a tactic by an abuser to sort of keep the power and control in the relationship you have things like um outing uh, which mm. is a form of course of control yeah that you know that's when a partner threatens to out you in mm. relation to your sexual identity um to like family friends work colleagues mm. but yeah i mean the prevalence rates within um lgbtq plus relationships are are very very similar so what are the other i mean i think you're right to sort of talk as well about the idea that there is that other additional dimension that somebody might not be public about their either their relationship status or their personal um sexuality and and nor should they be but i think it's really interesting the idea that you've got that secrecy and that fear that can play into that as well from the very person who should be on your side and should protect you so some of the other things that you were looking at you were looking at how people cope as well because obviously the system isn't doing a fantastic job either asking after people or supporting people or providing safe places yeah yeah so how are people getting by so uh, well um most of the time they are not um so the people that i interviewed none of them sorry one one of them out of the eight 
had sought support um the rest haven't and in fact in a few cases i was the first person that they have ever talked to um, about their experiences mm. um, many of them have never had relationships again um because they can't they don't want to put their trust into someone else because they don't there's mm. you know they're fearful that it might happen again um mm. and it's, it seems to be the case that a lot of the people i interviewed were were in their i guess 40s uh and upwards and the abuse that they experienced happened maybe when they were in their 20s um so they're talking to me retrospectively about their experiences um but a lot of them have had to sort of cope with all of this trauma um yeah. and they've never had a release and so speaking to me I think well I you know they, they told me that they they thought that it was you know very, very therapeutic and yeah. um and it was a chance to sort of have a non-judgmental judgmental conversation yeah. about their experiences and um about the issues that we have with the availability of services and the mm. fact that there's very little refuge and things um, for gay and bi men. Mm. But yeah. It's sorry. frightening, isn't it, that this is research, but I can imagine, like, if you're dealing with what's essentially very deep-seated long-term trauma for a lot of people, that's going to be quite challenging for you ethically and personally as a researcher. So how, how has that worked? Yes, yeah, so that's that's one of the, the challenges in research anyway it's it's mm -hmm. making sure that you have you know boundaries and you know you want to be personable but you can't you know you also can't be a counsellor because that's not your job role mm -hmm. um so yeah it, it is a challenge and I think the best thing is just to obviously be human and you know be affirmative and things mm -hmm. like that and but all you can do is I guess signpost and, mm -hmm. and make sure that you think you know that they're safe to talk to you and that you can then go on and give mm. them um uh, information for the relevant services that they may need after after speaking to me mm. um but that was one of the reasons why I I opted to have repeated interviews because yeah I understand that meeting someone for the first time you, you know you're not going to want to talk to a stranger necessarily about these yeah. things that have happened to you so I kind of I wanted to kind of do it slowly and at their own pace I, you know I wanted them to have as much agency you know control over mm. the, the interview format and um and that was certainly the case as well with when I when I did the photo elicitation part so mm. they brought um as I said five to ten photographs and then they were able to choose which order the photographs um yeah. were used and then they could sort of talk through them and and that was a really really good method and that's not something that's been really done at all with with men um or gay or bi men so um that was interesting and I think they really enjoyed it too so that's that's something I want to explore further um you've got some really interesting sort of like things I think that other other researchers can learn from in terms of method yes yeah, yeah. the kind of safety stuff needs to be primary Yes. Yeah. You having a, a past history and working in mental health and trauma has actually set you up to know what's coming because, you know, you can't ask people to share that kind of information without it having an impact to them and yep. to the person who hears it because it, yeah. it's good, really. Yeah. And that's it's important. Exactly. And that's why it's so important to have your debrief session. <laughs> mm. um, and even as well for myself as a researcher, um, I think it's really important that researchers acknowledge that 
we can have you know we're people and we have feelings too and we need to offload and and so my supervisors were sort of my point of contact that if if I have you know if I felt I needed a debrief then I could I could do that as well mm. it's really important isn't it, for that so I think sometimes this kind of like ideal vision of research is is the researcher is like this neutral pet <laughs> and like it's like no they're a human being who's hearing this yeah and it's troubling you know, and also it's something that you can't just hear and then forget about. You've got to actually go over it and hear it over and over again in order to sort of look at what your data is. And, and it is really quite complicated. Yeah. I thought one of the, the ideas as well about giving people agency is really important, particularly when you're walking with talking and, and working with people who've had their power taken away from them and their voice taken away from them. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I that was kind of my goal from the outset I wanted to try and put the people with lived experience in sort of the driver's seat and I wanted them to have full control over um how the the, the flow of the interview went so um obviously I, I had my interview schedule and things like that um but I kind of just I wanted them to to feel like they could stop the interview anytime you know that yeah. those things were very important if they needed a pause they needed a break if they needed to just end the interview and come back at a later date that was totally fine as well um so that was one of the the big the big things that i i really pressed upon mm. upon them um uh and yes so we had the multiple interviews so we had a, a initial introductory interviews with kind of icebreakers breaker sessions um to sort of just chat and saw people individually not as a group yeah individually yeah um, so giving them uh, a little bit about myself as well um, and was kind of open and honest about you know I I, I know people that have experienced things mm. uh, I when I was a child I, I had a, a I grew up for a, a number of years in a domestic violence household um, mm. so it's personal to me as well although I know it's not the same but I kind of just wanted to relate to people on a way that um, and then uh yeah and then so we we built we built it from there the relationship um mm -hmm. and then eventually then on the second or third interview we would then do the the proper interview and then I would just let them freely talk about their experiences and they could start at any point um whether it was the end or the middle it didn't really matter because we could mm -hmm. you know, go back and forth um and that seemed to work really well and um obviously I had prompts and things um mm -hmm. like that and then once that session finished uh, we had a debrief. Um, I also I thought it was very important at the end of every interview to ask mm. feedback on how they thought the interview went. If there was any questions that they they didn't like, if there was questions mm. that they thought could be changed or anything like that, I, I wanted it to sort of be as iterative as as, as possible. Um, and that was a, I think that was a really useful method because it it gave me sort of the the tools that I needed then to make this process um, as easy as possible for the survivors that I was talking to um and and then we did the photo elicitation session if if they if they felt comfortable with that so only two people out of the eight um took part in that mm. I would have I would have, have liked to have, have used it more but of course that's something I'd like to do more in the future mm. um and then again it's an interesting one isn't it because you're allowing people a different way of expressing themselves and yeah. sometimes there are things I think, particularly if you haven't had the chance to talk about something that's happened to you and there's no patterns that you've seen, particularly in public discourse or on television, it can be quite hard to find the words for things, I think. 
or even to to sort of name and express what's happening to you yeah yeah totally and I think that the use of the photos was really really beneficial because mm. in the initial uh I guess more semi-structured conversational mm. interview um it was obviously even though they could freely talk it was more structured in, in a sense whereas with mm. the photographs um we had already sort of talked about everything so it was mm. more just that certain in, um in events or instances that are things that happened um and they could say right in this photograph you could see x and this shows what happened on this day and and mm. and then it would open up all of these emotions and mm. and maybe thoughts and memories that they wouldn't have necessarily um had have come up with mm. it's a verbal pathway um, one sort of unlocking isn't it when you actually use other senses you unlock more memory i think yeah 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 that's the thing and, and so i thought i think that was yeah i think it was a really really powerful method and mm it seemed to seem to resonate really well and I know that a few of them thought that it was very therapeutic and mm. made, made them sort of consider their experiences differently I guess in a way the images kind of externalized their experiences because they were looking at it outside of themselves if that mm. makes sense it does and I think it's, if you've got an, an experience that's so painful that like that and it's not something you see represented you get to a point where you can't always remember its reality yeah. almost because it's such a big secret and there's no one to talk to yes yeah and it's really hard to to process it I think under those circumstances so yeah really interesting interesting work what was sort of like I used at a stage where you can think about themes or patterns or coping methods or anything yet or not quite so I'm I'm just at the process of I've analyzed um, the data and I'm at the process of of writing it up Mm. Um, so I can sort of speak briefly um, mm. about it because um, it's at the, the early stages. Um, mm. The goal is to have it written up by the autumn time, um, the yeah. entire thesis. But you know, <laughs> I might be being a little bit ambitious. Um, Good to have a goal. <laughs> but yeah. Um, so, in terms of, uh, I would say, all of them experienced. Um, very similar patterns of of abuse so we had at least th at least three of them came actually from countries outside of the UK mm. um, and they moved uh, to various locations in, in, in England and such and got into relationships with a older person and it seemed to be the case in, in, every, in every situation which I thought was interesting mm. um, interesting use of the word interesting there doing a lot of heavy lifting there but yeah I mean yeah so they were all younger and going out with a, an older person and um as English was not always their their first language um there was uh instances where their partners would use that as a, as a way to uh, abuse them so uh, maybe they would put them down they would say you know that their English wasn't good enough you know things like that so that was that was something that occurred um and a few um outing was something as well that um that did occur but only in one of the uh survivor stories so the rest of them everyone the re the, the rest of the the survivors um have all had all been out to the their communities and their family and friends so there, there was no issues with that um um what else 
you're looking at a lot of power play aren't you and a lot of the exploitation of disadvantage yes um that was the one of the biggest things problems around masculinity as well and internalized homophobia mm. um so on a few a, a few of the cases religion was a, a big factor um and that caused a lot of problems and sort of toxic dynamics within some of the relationships uh, as well mm. i mean that is one of the the things about stigma that's most pernicious isn't it it's one thing if you're getting hostility and negative messages from outside but when that sort of poison actually creeps inside you and you start to hate yourself and hate people who like you that's when I think you see the most poisonous outcomes I think one of the one of the big sort of takeaways from this Mm -hmm. is that although they didn't reach out for help and support the abuse that they experienced was significant like significant horrific forms of physical Mm. abuse and also like psychological sexual abuse as well Mm. and financial abuse financial abuse as well excuse me Mm. and the literature when you read it will tell you that you know no they they don't experience as significant forms of abuse and you know there'll be a lot of narratives and things that say otherwise and Mm -hmm. that's just not what I find Mm. I find it very strange when you get these narratives and then you go to dig into them and you're like, based on nothing. No research has been done in this area. No one can successfully state what is and isn't happening for people or whether something is indeed a problem or not if you haven't even looked. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm. So tell us a little bit about some of the, because we've talked about the kind of nature of the experience and in some ways domestic abuse and and interpersonal violence is interpersonal violence there are some things that are specific to this community because of the negativity and stereotypes and stigma that exists in society which make things more complicated what about um how people can get support and the need for tailored support for this group so there are um the support that is available is limited um but there are certainly in 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 Wales, um, where I'm based, there are a few tailored services for LGBTQ plus people to go, mm-hmm. and they're sort of peer led services. So you can go. There's one called Callan DVS. Um, they you will go and you'll go through for a few sessions, and then they will train you up, and you can become a peer, and then you can go out and help others. Um, as well so that is a really successful um, organization and it's a really really good mm. organization here in Wales in terms of England um, most of the services are sort of more in your I guess larger cities like London and things like that mm-hmm. um, so you have things like Gallup um, mm-hmm. um, London Friend um, Broken Rainbow um, a few services um, such as those and I know mm-hmm. that they do offer support for people experiencing domestic abuse but the support that's offered like a lot of the people that I've spoke to have said that they don't want to phone a helpline you know they don't want to do that kind of thing they want to actually be able to go and speak to someone and have someone that understands their Mm -hmm. experiences understands their gender or sexual identity you know they don't want to have to go and explain themselves or explain why they're in the relationship that they're in and things like that and and that's totally understandable I mean a lot of that have access services have had like negative experiences and they have had people that 
you know, have have been judgmental, have discriminated against them. Um, and obviously, when you're going and you're, you know, you're 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 a shell of a person, you know, you're you've been in this really mm-hmm. abusive relationship. You don't then want want to then when you're reaching out to someone when you you know you might be at your lowest point to then have to explain your very existence and like of why you are the way you are. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's often people's experiences when they do. And I'm not I'm not saying that you know. I'm not here to say that services, you know, are terrible and things like that. And I yeah. know, I know that staff work hard and, um, as I, you know, myself, I've, I've worked in, in mental health services and stuff. And I know, yeah. I know the pressure that people are under. And I know that everything is underfunded and overstretched. And certainly yeah. since COVID, you know, that's been even more of a problem. Mm. So, yeah, it's not about saying that the services and the staff that we have are inadequate or anything like that it's just by saying that improvements need to be made and people in this sort of day and age should feel like they can reach out for help and support if they need it Mm, yeah I think one of the big changes would be people actually looking out for this instead of making the assumption that everything's going to be fine yes yeah having in their head this is what this looks like and if it doesn't look like this then it's not that problem yes yeah yeah even just asking is going to make a difference isn't it yeah, that's the thing. And that that's what, um, you know, was said to me. If someone had just asked, mm. are you okay? Do you need help? Mm. That would have been it. Mm. Is there, I mean, as well, there's, there's, a, there's that other sort of issue that is amazing and excellent that people are experiencing peer-led services. Yes. Quite frankly, if you pay your taxes, you should get some statutory services too. But that's by the by. We, we've talked about that. But I wonder if there's... there's um some issues as well with with going to people who know you from your community you know if you want to keep um things like um the experience of violence private how you manage that as well because you presumably are in quite small circles particularly outside london and the bigger cities yes i think that that's certainly a good point although i mean i guess if you if you reached out to a service Mm. in say the one I mentioned Cal and DVS yeah. and I, I don't know if they would necessarily know who you are but then I mean yeah. that, that might be the risk that you'd have to take I guess in in, mm. in reaching out for help and support mm. better to ask isn't it it's better to actually do that yeah. um, was there anything in terms of people's sort of personal coping strategies because sometimes we find that people trying to manage or medicate pain can get yes. into other types of trouble as well yes so um some of the some of the things that was found was sort of negative a lot of negative sort of coping strategies um mm. and i guess they externalized their trauma by using um alcohol um drugs uh, maybe um getting them people engaging in risky sort of sexual behaviors and and things like that um that was that was some of the the big things um obviously people's mental health was completely destroyed um and yeah I mean just getting themselves into some risky situations and you're describing like classic trauma responses though aren't you yes it's really yeah. interesting when people suggest that these that same-sex couples don't experience that the kind of trauma that everybody else does it's like well weirdly they do seem to be and all the symptoms are the same so let's just say that they are having yeah. that experience 
Yeah. And I mean, as well, one of the ones that I think is most sort of telling is that rehearsing risky behavior, be it, be it sexual or just trying to see if you can get a different result doing the same thing or whether it's has happened to you because there's something wrong with you or whether this happens to everybody. And, and you get a lot of professionals can be very um, judgmental around that. And for me, I mean, it's not something I've done, but I absolutely understand why somebody plays a situation over and over again, trying to get a different outcome. It makes such a lot of sense to me. I, I'm always quite surprised when you hear people being quite terse about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I guess the other thing you're saying about sort of people trying to manage their distress, numbing themselves or distracting yes. themselves with drugs and alcohol, that's going to make some people experience them as unreliable witnesses to their own bodies. Yes. Yeah. That's going to make it even harder, I think, for them to be able to lodge complaints, to keep themselves safe. Yeah. I mean, and, and uh, you know, one of the big, big issues as well, mm. because of this, I guess, framing of domestic abuse in society as as being only against um, women and girls is that most of the survivors I spoke to never really considered that they were experiencing domestic abuse until mm. maybe even sometimes after they had left the relationship or it, if it wasn't for someone like a friend or a family member pointing out to them um, because they just thought that this was this was normal this is what happens in relationships mm. relationships get heated yeah but I mean like it's another it's, an, it's there's two or three things going on there isn't it so I think that can be true for a lot of people engaged in abusive relationships I had some I had someone commenting the other day it's being aside but we're there so let's chat about it anyway talking about um it was looking at some older men talking about their relationships with younger people you know so and almost getting kind of kudos for going out with 22 year olds and things like that and the same if you ever ask a 22 year old when they're older about their relationship with someone who's much older than them they're always like it was the worst <laughs> like you know there's that really interesting um objectification isn't there and as soon as the object gets a chance to speak they're like this is not working mm -hmm. and it's it's in and certainly not all age discrepancy relationships are like that but where where power is weaponized it always ends up being a yes. problem yeah and I think like that's one of the main things as well that I I'm kind of trying to take away from all of this is mm -hmm. that domestic abuse or intimate partner violence mm -hmm. um, is not necessarily a gendered issue mm -hmm. always it's all about power and control and anybody can be on the end of that and I think certainly with 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 my my research I know that the people that I interviewed mm -hmm. it was very much power and control that was at the center it, it you know it was everything the the fact that you know their language if they were originally from outside of the UK that any was kind of dependency anything, it was anything, anything used yeah used. and I think that's important to consider Mm, I think so too. I can see that time, time has really got away from us. <laughs> How did that happen? Um, Dave, is there anything that you wanted to say? I appreciate that, you know, we brought you in and then totally ignored you for the whole of this conversation. I'm sure you'll appreciate sometimes they're the most interesting sessions for me that even though I'm kind of just in the corner of the screen, just kind of really listening in uh, and, and sort of trying to follow the conversation. So uh, 
No, I don't think there's anything particular I wanted to add, Nikki. Just, uh, you know, obviously it's been really interesting listening yeah. to the conversation this evening. Yeah. And Shannon, is there anything you sort of wanted to, to leave people with? You've, you've brought up some really interesting and important things about the nature of this kind of research, how important it is, some of the good practice, um, thinking about how people can be overlooked and we need to ask questions, we need to be more curious um, and also some of the issues and the need for tailored support. Is there anything else that you want to offer before we finish up? Um, I think it's I kind I think that services that are willing to learn, adapt, and 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 grow can and they can successfully you know they can from that they can successfully create welcoming environments for LGBTQ plus people. Um, small steps. That's all it is towards inclusion. Um, will ultimately um, enable greater access to support communities that have felt left out for far too long. Yeah, I think so. It's just so important, isn't it, for us to keep our eyes open and check in on each other. Yes. So thank you very much for that, Shannon. Um, I really appreciate you you doing this in your own time. Very, very much appreciated. Um, and I guess it just remains for us to say um, good night and thanks very much. Thank you very much. Night all. Bye-bye. Oh, 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 oh,